Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. It's a Cardassian Hollowsweet program. An adaptation of one of Shogoth's Enigma tales. Is it? I see. Well, you sound disappointed. I thought you enjoyed uh, mystery novels. I do. Human mystery novels. The trouble with Cardassian Enigma tales is that they all end the same way. All the suspects are always guilty. Yes, but the challenge is determining exactly who is guilty of what. I just love how we came up with the idea to read this book for this episode because usually we sit down and we go, well, you know, we have a list of a lot of books that we want to cover and we want to get to someday and, oh, well, this new book is coming out, whatever. And this one was so random, Dan. You just randomly picked it. Yeah, it was kind of the thing, like, I, I needed a book to read in between some, you know, other books that I'd read and saw this one on my shelf and grabbed it. There was a little bit of thinking put into it because so far, other than new releases and comics, we've done one original series novel, one TNG novel, two, I guess, if you count Warped. And I thought maybe it's time for a Deep Space Nine novel. So that's kind of what I had in mind when I grabbed it, but not knowing for sure that it would be the next one that we cover on the show. Uh, But it's also one that's been on my shelf for a while that I've just, it's been there tempting me and I've been wanting to read it for a long time. Yeah. I love how you said to me, Hey, I just started reading this book. Do we want to do it on the show? And I was like, sure why not yeah you know (laughs) so welcome everyone to positively trek this is our book club episode it's our sixth one that we've done it's also our 50th episode of positively trek i'm bruce gibson with as you heard dan gunther and yeah he's the one who chose the book devil in the sky a deep space nine book that came out way back in 1995 crazy crazy to think about I, i was thinking about this in like 1995 so To place it in Star Trek history, Deep Space Nine started in January of 1993, so it had been on the air for a couple years, and we're right smack in the middle of Star Trek Generations, which came out in 94, and Star Trek First Contact has not come out yet. It came out in 96. So, uh, yeah, if that kind of helps place exactly where where you were in your Star Trek watching, if you were a Star Trek fan in the 90s, this is when this book came out. Excellent. Yes. So this book was written by two authors, Greg Cox and John Gregory Bedencourt. So I have never read this book before. And Dan, I'm assuming you haven't either. I had not. Yeah. Like I said, this one was kind of tempting me for a while. The uh, the The basic premise of it that I'd heard about really interested me uh, and yet I'd never picked it up and read it before reading it for this episode. Okay. So why didn't we read this book? Cause I was into Star Trek books at the time, but I know I didn't necessarily keep up with every book that came out. And this one is an early one. This is the 11th DS nine book that came out. And 
Yeah, I just never had it. I never bought it. You obviously had it on your shelf. Did you buy it new at the time? It's been sitting on your shelf for like 15 years. I know, more than 15, 25 years. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) That's always scary when you make that realization, right? Uh, No, I apparently bought, this was another one that I apparently bought at the English-speaking bookstore in Seoul, South Korea, when I lived there teaching English, because I've got a... I've got a price tag on the back that says used book, 4,000 won at www.whatthebook.com. So there you go. Wow, 4,000. You paid 4,000 for that book. Wow, look (laughs) at that. I've never paid 4,000 for any book. (laughs) For those out there who might be curious, you could do a rough rough conversion of 1,000 won to one US dollar approximately. So it was about four bucks when I bought this book. That's good. That's good to know. I'm glad you didn't overpay for it then. (laughs) (laughs) No, $4,000 would be a bit much. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm looking here in our notes and you put something in here about the origin of the book, a quote from Greg Cox. Where did this quote come from? Because I hadn't seen this. So Justin Ozer, who's a listener of the show, shout out to Justin. Hey, how's it going? Uh, He frequently posts the books that he's reading in uh, various Star Trek Facebook groups. So there's a few of them. There's the Star Trek books discussion group, uh, literally Star Trek, which is, I think, where this one comes from. He posted a picture of it and Greg Cox chimed in in the comments talking about uh, where this book came from. So, yeah, it was apparently John Ordover, the editor at Pocket Books at the time, who came up with the basic idea of Hordas overrunning Deep Space Nine, which is kind of like the the elevator pitch for this book, I guess. And then he recruited John Gregory Betancourt and Greg Cox to write the book. Okay, so I didn't realize that this came from Greg's comment in our Facebook or in Justin's Facebook post. So does he know that we're reviewing this book on the show? I did make a comment that we were in the roundabout hope that Greg would see it. I don't know. He, he didn't like the comment or anything like that. So I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, the information's there. If you noticed it, I don't know if you saw that or not. Oh, great. Greg Cox might be listening to this review. I don't know how I feel about that. Okay. That might give you a little indication of how I feel about the book. So It's not, wait, we'll get to it. Don't, no. don't read in too much into it, everybody. Just, you know, we'll get into it. That's what we're going to do now. We're, so now let's talk about the premise of this book. So the Federation has decided to transport a family of Hordas to Bajor to help with the Bajoran mining industry that has left devastated after the Cardassian occupation. However, there was uh, these Cardassian raiders that came and kidnapped the Horda mother named Tatan. So Dan... You said you were interested in this book because of the Hordas. So what did you think of the premise? Yeah, the premise to me is really fascinating because I think very early on, I was really fascinated with the Horda as seen in the original series episode, The Devil in the Dark. You know, the idea that this kind of scary inhuman monster actually turns out to be a very kind hearted, loving mother who's just looking after her eggs basically which is you know the central premise of that episode the idea that this scary sci-fi monster is actually you know we're the ones in the wrong right that's just a classic star trek premise and the creatures themselves were always really interesting to me these you know silicon based life forms that i think spock says or somebody says they tunnel through rock as easily as you and i would walk through air you know just these 
completely alien life forms that are absolutely different from anything we've encountered, anything that we're familiar with, and, you know, relating to them on a personal level. Now you unleash these on a space station and like what kind of havoc could be wrought. <laughs> I just think that's a really neat idea. And like, how would the civilians of the station interact with them and what would they think and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, my brain was going in a million different directions as to like how this would all turn out. I also like the title of the book, Devil in the Sky, which is a play on Devil in the Dark. And of course, Devil in the Dark is in the mines on a planet, and this is in the sky, per se, I guess, on a space station. So that's the one thing I liked about the title. But yeah, I was interested in this too, because we don't always see a lot of the Horda, and we haven't really seen any of them outside of the original series. Now, we've had novels where we've had Horda as like officers in Starfleet, but we haven't seen them on any of the TV series or even the movies. No, I don't think they've ever really shown up anywhere other than I'm trying to think, was there maybe one in the background of lower decks? I don't think they even did that as far as like an Easter egg that I can remember. I know in uh, star Trek online, this was after I finished playing it. So I never encountered this, but you could get a Horda pet that apparently follows you around. I, I don't know if, it offers any kind of combat bonus. I, I would assume it would, but I have no idea. I, that was long after I stopped playing it, unfortunately. See, that sounds really strange to me because we've had books where we have a Horda Starfleet officer. And to think that there's somebody out there that has a Horda as a pet, too. Like that, that <laughs> contradicts like what the Horda are to me. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. I, I, Nikki and I have been rewatching The Mandalorian just to kind of go on off on a tangent. And in the first episode, we see them cooking Kowakian monkey lizards like Salacious Crumb, uh, Jabba the Hutt's little guy from the, Re the Return of the Jedi. Yeah, that goes. <laughs> yeah, and we started talking like, are they sentient or are they like just pets slash food animals? Like, we really weren't sure. So, yeah, the, the Horda have kind of been played differently over the years but you know right from the outset from devil in the dark it's pretty clear that they are sentient living creatures that you know are on the same level at least as humans and other aliens that are part of the federation well and the horda can speak through translators too mm -hmm. so it's you know we can actually have dialogue with them so they are intelligent beings so i can't picture having horda as a pet unless they're baby horda which by the way, we get into that in this book for sure. I don't know, but I, maybe, I don't know. There's different Horda. Or maybe Horda like to be pets. Maybe they actually communicate through a translator and say, you know, take care of me. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Uh, I, and I may be, like I said, I may be totally mischaracterizing how they're shown in Star Trek Online. I'm sure one of our listeners can uh, get reach out to us and let us know that if I've got that completely wrong. <laughs> So now we, we do have the mother that's been kidnapped, which we'll get into in a moment. But then we have the mother has these eggs on board this transport ship and there's 20 of her eggs there. And so now the Deep Space Nine crew have to bring it to the station and take care of the eggs. And they're in a status field. And then Jake and Nog, my gosh, how much I didn't like them at this point. Because they were up to no good. They break in to where the eggs are because they want to steal one of the eggs. And then they forget to turn off in the stasis field that they were in. And then they're just going to, what, hatch open and get everywhere? 
that's what starts to happen. And it's like, it's because of Nog and Jake that caused this issue. And I do have a bit of a problem with that too, because they didn't really get to pay for that as much as they should have. Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. I was pretty angry at the two of them at this point. And I mean, you know, season two of Deep Space Nine, they're still kind of, you know, on that level of mischievous kids and that sort of thing. But at the same time, I'm like, this is just one year before Nog convinces Cisco to allow him to attend Starfleet Academy. And I'm like, I don't know if if these two kids and especially Jake, you know, like, I, I just can't picture him going along with this so easily or, or shirking responsibility. And I mean, spoilers, we get into spoilers pretty early in this, but you know, by the end of the the book, he's come clean to Cisco about his role in this, but at the same time, yeah, it still feels like there should have been a lot more fallout from this and a lot more consequences than what they get because it, it, this is criminal behavior. Like they have caused, you know, in today's terms, what would be millions of dollars of damage to the space station, put the lives of everyone in danger, ended up causing, well, actually, again, spoiler alert, they they think they've caused the death of one of the Horda as well, basically, from everything that happens. So yeah, they, they really should be made to answer for more than they do, I think. Oh, absolutely. Because when this happened, I thought, oh, man, they are going to get in some really deep trouble in this book. And it was just almost felt like an afterthought by the end. Like Jake is helping Nog do things in, what was it, Cork's Bar or something? Yeah, helping, help, helping them clean up and, and repair the damage, basically, because Quark had found out what they had done and was keeping silent based on, you know, them doing work for him, which he said he feels he could keep up for months, basically. <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's about it. Yeah, I, I, I really thought the hammer was going to come down really hard on them. If anything, I was expecting that they would then help remedy the situation by figuring out a solution to it. Like, you know, and then they kind of save the day. Yeah, that's totally where I thought the story was going, which, you know, maybe a little bit of obvious story structure, but still, like, generally speaking in stories, there there has to be some sort of payment for hubris for you know doing something this wrong and it, it is frustrating and it feels unfulfilled if that doesn't happen which is definitely one of the things that this this book led me to feel about jake and nog's role in it yeah they got off way too easy way too easy because of everything that goes on in this book with the horda and like you're saying, they're practically destroying the station. There's all this damage and, and people worried about their lives and stuff. <laughs> and even Odo almost got sucked into space until he became basically a cork. Hey, <laughs> Odo was a cork and he hates quark. And no, <laughs> but, but, um, I mean, I, I kind of enjoyed the Horda going around the station. And a lot of ways I thought, is this going to play out to be a comedic book? Because I thought, it, in a lot of ways, it has parallels to Tribbles. You know, mm. the Tribbles are starting to multiply and, and take over a station or a ship or whatever. And I thought, well, they're, the Horde are not going to multiply, but it's going to be chasing them around as they're tunneling through everything and eating everything. That I thought it might turn into a comical story, but it didn't go there. And uh, just seeing O'Brien trying to deal with the situation and Odo chasing these around. And even then, Odo becomes, he shapeshifts 
into a Horda, which then they think, oh, this is our mom. So, you know, Odo became the mom of the Horda in this and they were (laughs) following him around. I thought that was a fun little way to do that, to get them to, you know, kind of be corralled into one area, which, you know, that plan ultimately backfires. But I thought that was pretty smart. I do like, though, that that is not something that continues throughout the whole book. Like, it was something that, you know, worked for a while, but eventually just stopped working because either the Hordas figured out that, you know, this wasn't their mother or they just ended up not caring (laughs) that their mother was trying to lead them away or something. Because it makes sense that, you know, Odo's not actually their mother. They would on some fundamental level, you know, they they can't communicate with her presumably because, you know, she slash Odo is not actually their mother. So, you know, it makes sense that it wouldn't work indefinitely. What I really like about this aspect of the story is it really comes down to fundamentally the, the basic conflict of man versus nature, which is something you get sometimes in Star Trek, but not too often. It's usually, you know, a more interpersonal conflict, but I like the baby Horda as this force of nature that just seems inexorable that keeps coming. And and the Horda are so invulnerable to our basic, you know, weapons and that sort of thing that they just shrug off, you know, being fired at by phasers. They go right through force fields eventually. I just think it was a really neat problem for them to have to overcome especially played out on like the battlefield that is deep space nine. I thought that was kind of a, a, it's a neat concept. I can see why they wanted to go with this. Yeah. Because there's really no way to stop them. Yeah. You could shoot at them. That doesn't do anything. They're just, you know, going through anything. You can't even keep them contained into any kind of status field or room. Cause they even, as Odo takes them into a room when they think that Odo is their mother, they're not able to contain them in there, too, because one of the Horda even goes to a, a wall and starts tunneling through that, which is going out into space and gets sucked out into space. And like I said earlier, Odo basically becomes a, a cork <laughs> for the whole. <laughs> but the poor little Horda out there, we thought, died because it got beamed into the infirmary and it was pronounced dead, which actually made me a little sad. But. Yeah, at the same time, I thought, well, I don't know what they're going to do because they're you can't do anything. They're all just run. And you know, one of the solutions that you know, when Cisco was talking to whoever, whatever council, whatever on Bajor was like, you know, just beam them out into space. And he's like, well, I can't kill them. I don't want to kill them because they, you know, already one died out into space. So yeah, there was a big solution of uh, the question was, well, how do we get rid of them or how do we control them? Yeah. And, and I like that, you know, this presents so many problems at so many turns and there is an easy solution, like, like this Bajoran minister says, but, you know, Cisco and his crew, they're Starfleet. They're not going to willingly immediately sacrifice sentient lives to save themselves when, you know, the, the Hordas, they're innocents, right? All they're doing is going and eating. That's what they're naturally wanting to do. It's just that they don't have a parent there to corral them and and help them figure that out. So, you know, I, I like that that solution is always there. Like it's always present. They could just do that from the beginning, but they choose not to, Uh, And, you know, it does get to a point where the threat is big enough that it's going to destroy the entire station, that Cisco is about to take that leap and do that to sacrifice these, 
19 lives that remain to save everyone on the station, which, you know, at that point, that makes sense. You have to make that call as a commanding officer. But, you know, up to that point, they're willing to, you know, risk damage to the station and, you know, possible, uh, possible loss of lives. But, you know, that hasn't happened yet. But they're willing to risk that to save the lives of the Hordas, regardless of what the Cardassian computer thinks they should do. Yes, which is, yeah, just beam them out <laughs> in yeah. the space. At first, I felt bad for the Bajoran minister because they didn't want the Horda on Bajor, even though there was business people that were the ones who requested this, the Horda for the mining. The minister was like, well, this is, you know, sacred ground. We don't want the Horda here. But then, you know, as Cisco pointed out, well, if it destroys the station, it's also killing Bajoran lives. There's, ba- you know, Bajorans here on the station. Mm-hmm. But that didn't seem to phase the minister. And I just, I did not like that. Yeah. They, they seem to like cast the minister in the role of this xenophobic person who doesn't want any aliens on the planet, especially aliens who are as alien as the Horda. This part of the story, like, you know, I like him as kind of an antagonist that, you know, Cisco has to overcome somehow. But it bugged me a little bit that you know, these business interests would make this, you know, appeal to Starfleet to bring the Hordas and Starfleet and the Federation, like make all these plans to do that. And like, it never really went through the government at any point. They never okayed it. They never sought the government's okay on this. Like at the very least, wouldn't there at least be entry visas they'd have to like process for the Hordas to come to Bajor? Like there was a bunch of stuff that I'm like, this feels like if this were the real world, there's a bunch of things that would have prevented it coming to this, you know? Yeah. Like the government should have known about this early on. And if they had a problem, said something about it and maybe they did know about it, but you know, if there had been like official channels that they would have stamped approvals on, like that would be something that Cisco could go to and say, no, you said this was okay. We're going ahead with this, you know? So that, that bugged me a little bit. Yeah, Cause you would also think that they would try to help out. Okay, maybe they don't want the horde there, but you know, on their planet. But at the same time, yeah, there's lives at stake here. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, but it's just like, nope, your problem, not ours. Goodbye, I'm hanging up. You know, it's like, mm, no. And and he doesn't even really get his comeuppance at the end either, because no. you know he they the solution they eventually come up with, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, but basically he only changes his mind when he realizes, Oh, there's a benefit to me. So like he never even really gets any kind of comeuppance for this, which bugs me. (laughs) Yeah. Same here. There was one scene in here that really terrified me in a way I was really starting to worry. And that was when the Horda started getting into the classroom. Yeah. Keiko and, and Molly there. And the one that's going towards Molly, yeah, that one kind of freaked me out. Yeah, I love that scene because, yeah, at first you're you're terrified for Molly, but then it turns out Molly is kind of the only one in the classroom has, who has the right idea. She actually recognizes this as a Horda because she's doing her ABCs and, you know, realizes, oh, it's hungry and gives it something to eat. And then when it's all over, she turns to her mom and says, H is for Horta. Like she's learned all about this <laughs> creature. I'm like, ah, that's cool. <laughs> Which then becomes the solution for a while to the problem, and that is to keep the hoarder from going all over the station, keep throwing items at the hoarder for them to eat, have all the babies eat all this stuff. And so everybody, including Jake and Nog, show up, 
and Quark and everybody are throwing chairs and whatever. Anything you can think of, even if it's something sacred, uh, something Bajorans that's sacred, you throw it at them too. And they're just eating, eating. But at the same time, they're growing. So they're getting bigger. You know, the thing that surprised me, and there, there's this one little aspect where Quark's trying to do an insurance scam basically and like throw all these cases of, of some sort of ketchup <laughs> at the Horda. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they won't eat it, but he's trying to get rid of it and then claim like the loss as an insurance loss or something like that. I really thought that was setting up some sort of solution to this. I thought like that stuff was going to be used somehow to yeah. control them or, or something like that. But it was, it was literally just a one-off joke that Quirk couldn't get away with his insurance fraud scam, which I, I was really surprised about. I kept expecting that to come back and it never did. I did too. I thought, Oh, this is leading to some solution because you know, he throws, like you said, this ketchup stuff and <laughs> he's like, Oh, it's so bad that the Horda won't even eat it. You know, it's like, okay, but there's going to be some connection to the fact that this is something the Horda won't eat. They're eating everything but this. So there's something that they're going to do with this, but yeah, it never came into play anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Which I mean, I don't know if I'm, Thankful that the solution didn't end up being like pumping tons of ketchup in that corrals the hordas or something like maybe that's not the solution we wanted anyway. But it, it seemed odd that like it felt like it was being set up for that. Yeah. Well, there was the other storyline in this where we have Kira, Dax and Bashir going to rescue the mommy horda to tan. Uh, but before we get to that. This book is an early Deep Space Nine book. As you mentioned, it was written sometime after season two, but takes place in season two. Mm -hmm. So it's still kind of early in the Deep Space Nine years. What did you think of the characters and how they were written in here? Do you think they were written well? Generally speaking, I appreciated the characterizations. There were a few that did bug me, though. Uh, I think the biggest for me was Bashir and... You know, part of it is an early Deep Space Nine problem. I feel like rewatching DS9, the writers weren't sure what to do with Bashir. He was so wet behind the ears, you know, immature kind of thing. And the book, to be fair, reflects that. Like, he seems pretty immature here and finds his footing a little bit in this novel, I think. You know, he kind of stepped up and did some good stuff in the novel, but he was still a little bit bumbling and his response to Kira and Jadzia felt more like early season one than season two. But, yeah. you know, still, he's still got a little bit of that in him at that point, I guess. But yeah, it seemed like he was just a little bit too much season one, early season one Bashir for my, for my tastes. I read some Goodreads reviews when I finished the book and I heard similar discussion about characters feeling early season one like kira where mm -hmm. she's just angry all the time and she's bashir just drives her crazy but at the same time i i kind of enjoyed it i enjoyed seeing bashir trying to hit on dax dax kind of being receptive to it but just not you know not really wanting to go there but just playing along with it and kira being just frustrated and seeing like why is dax you know just entertaining him you know why is she letting him just hit on him and and he's just like irking kira all the time and i was kind of enjoying it i mean it did it did seem like early season one it seemed very early but i mean i did enjoy it it was it was a little fun to me but i i do agree that it might have been a little too much 
immaturity in it. Yeah, but a little I, bit. It was fine. Just for just for where it takes place. And I mean, yeah, it was written during season two. It was uh so it came out in June of nineteen ninety five. So season two would have been wrapping up around that yeah. time. So it was it was written while season two was on. Maybe he was going, maybe they were going by mostly his characterization in season one, who knows how much of season two had aired by that point. But, uh, yeah, little things like, I think one thing that bugged me was Kira having to be, uh, told that maybe don't have your phaser on kill right now when you're going after the card. I was like, Ooh, that's a bit, that's a bit much. Like I didn't feel like that was something she would immediately go to at this point. Uh, you know, she has a lot of anger towards the Cardassians and stuff, but you have a weapon capable of stunning. I, I don't think that she would immediately set it to kill, for example. No, I, I kind of agree with you there. I, I'm just thinking now, we know that this book was written during season two and came out after season two, but does it say when the did the book indicate when it actually takes place? Because maybe it is supposed to take place in season one. I don't remember. I'm pretty sure it said uh, takes place during season two. Yeah. So historians note right at the very start of the book, Devil in the Sky takes place in the second season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So okay. no indication when in the season, but just during season two, basically. Okay. Yeah. Because I remember thinking it was taking place in season two, but I couldn't remember if it was noted there. I just assumed that based on when it was written and published. But what about Cisco, Odo, and O'Brien? I thought their characterizations were pretty spot on. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the voices of Odo for sure I thought was great. O'Brien I felt was captured really well. And Cisco at this time, I think they captured his character pretty well right now as well. Like he's, you know, if you think about the outline for Deep Space Nine, he's like the governor of a colony basically. And they they did some interesting things in this novel with his character where he's riding that line between a Starfleet commander who has to look out for his crew and all that kind of stuff and also deal with, as we've alluded to, the bureaucracy of Bajor and dealing with the first minister or the minister and all on all this stuff as well. So I, I thought his character especially, it just seemed like season one, season two Cisco to me while I was reading this. I really appreciated that. Yeah. And now that I'm thinking back on it, I think I would have liked to have more Cisco in this. I mean, mm-hmm. he was in there, but not a whole lot. He didn't have a huge part in it. Yeah. So so what about the rescue? So Kira, Dax, and Bashir, they go off to rescue the Horda, Tatan, and they discover in this big cavern is a bunch of Bajoran slave laborers. And then they decide, well, we can't take them back with us because we came in here on a runabout and we don't have room for all these people. So what are we going to do? And then one of the solutions is, well... Maybe if we capture one of these Cardassian ships, we can take everybody back with us. So Kira and Bashir are on this moon and in these caverns trying to rescue everybody. And they have some security officers with them, which are all Starfleet, none of them Bajoran. And Dax is back on the runabout. So what do you think of this storyline? It was one that, like, at first I wasn't sure where they were going with it, like how long the the search for Titan and and all of this would take. But this is one that I feel like in the second half of the book, I really got into. I really was kind of enjoying the liberation of these Bajoran worker, the Bajoran slaves that the Cardassians had. And, you know, the, the kind of military aspect of, of Kira leading her team and, and through the, 
the caverns and, and getting them out. And then Bashir, of course, being at the head of this group of Bajoran slaves who end up kind of revolting and, and aiding Kira in this escape attempt. I, I really got into this story the more is the more it went on, you know, at, at first, like I said, kind of like, uh, I don't know. But then later on, yeah, it really kind of became my favorite part of the book. I liked it too. I think the one thing though I was hoping to get was a little more backstory of something that happened in Kira's past because there was one of the Bajorans that she recognized and they knew each other. So I thought maybe we would hear some things that had happened in her past. But then again, the authors may not have been able to go there because it was so early in the Deep Space Nine TV series that they probably didn't feel like they could write a backstory for Kira, mm-hmm. but that would have been a great opportunity for this. But yeah, I enjoyed her liberating the Bajorans because it means, of course, a lot to her. And even though the occupation is over, it's not over. You know, there's still Bajorans suffering under the realm of Cardassians. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it was it was good to see this. I thought it was an interesting thing for the novel to explore because, yeah, it, it, we kind of don't think about it too much when you watch Deep Space Nine because when you see the show, we have the Bajorans working with the Federation administering the space station, but like the Cardassians pulled out of Bajor and ended what was like a 60-year occupation or something like that, like a really long occupation, probably about a week before the first episode of Deep Space Nine starts. So this is really fresh. And yeah, yeah, it makes sense. There would be these, you know, remnants of that scattered about like on this mining colony. And, uh, you know, for example, the season two, three part that opens that, that season, we see kind of a similar situation where there's Bajoran prisoners of war on this planet and Kira goes and rescues them. And one of them is Lee Nallis and all that. I really felt a lot of parallels to that, that, yeah, if there's one, you know, there's probably more, even though the Cardassians say, oh no, those were the last ones we promise. <laughs> well, and that was the other thing I thought, well, how do we know there aren't more out there? You mm-hmm. know, it's a scary thought to think that, you know, just because you think the occupation is over or that a war is over, are there still prisoners out there? Yeah. And, I mean, one government could say that, no, you, we've returned all you know, the captured prisoners, but you never know that for sure. You mm-hmm. really don't. Yeah. And when you're talking about like an interstellar community, like it's a big galaxy, like it's easy to hide a planet or a moon or an asteroid that has a camp like this. Who knows how many there could be out there? Well, thankfully, they do rescue the Horda and they rescue the Bajoran slave laborers. And uh, but, you know, still we have these baby Horda on the station. But of course, as we're getting closer to the end of the book, I start to realize, oh, wait, the solution was there all along. Why didn't I pick it up sooner? But I knew it before they revealed it, because near the beginning of the book, we're told that there's this thing called the prodigal, which is when Bajorn's most distant moon makes this wide orbit and comes within sight of Bajor only once every five years. And it's going to get fairly close enough to Deep Space Nine to be seen, too. And so I was like, I started realizing as we're getting further in the book, wait a second. They keep talking about beaming Horta because that's the only solution I can think of. But where can you beam them to? Oh, that moon that's going to be coming around. But at the same time, I'm like, isn't Deep Space Nine pretty far from Bajor at this point? That really would a moon be that close? Yeah. So this was a solution that like as we got closer to it, 
it kind of bugged me that I didn't realize it, but like we get like, oh, it's coming into range. We've got gravitational waves. I was at that moment. I was like, oh, oh, okay, right, of course. But yeah, if you think about the Bajoran system, it's one of those things that like you know, Bajor orbits the Bajoran sun, and like if you look at graphics and stuff, the wormhole actually also orbits Bajor's sun, but it would be like a much further out orbit than Bajor is at least according right. to what we've seen before. So like this moon, it, I don't think that it would be like a moon of Bajor. Like that doesn't make sense to me that it kind of bugged me that like that geography of the system just doesn't work. It wouldn't be a moon that circles the planet Bajor. And I was thinking like, why it would be really cool if they used the terminology like dwarf planet, like a, one of the really small planets that that's on a really distant orbit around Bajor's sun that, you know, maybe mathematically could come close to deep space nine and the wormhole every once in a while. So like basically the Pluto of the Bajoran system and kind yeah. of in my mind, that's how I reconciled it. That's I, I, thought of it as like a small moon or dwarf planet that's like on a really wide orbit around the Bajoran sun. Now, that would make sense. I like that. That that works for me. But yeah, and I thought, well, you know, we can beam all the Horda to this moon. But then I thought, well, aren't, aren't they going to like die on the moon because there's no oxygen? And I don't know if it was identified that there's oxygen on the moon, but they did say there was certain minerals, including latinum, in the moon. So I guess they can survive within the moon as they're tunneling through it. Mm -hmm. Well, they actually do outright say in the novel that the Horda don't require oxygen as well, because I think they say that on Janus 6, there was no oxygen except that the, oh, the right. human colonists created when they created their uh, habitat there. That's right. Yeah, I remember them saying that because, yeah, the, the oxygen was brought by the miners. So, mm -hmm. the, yeah, the Horda didn't need the oxygen. And a lot of that was being speculated that you know, with that Horda that got into space, you know, it could probably survive because it doesn't need oxygen, but it died. But then when we find Mama Horda comes on board, we find out that the baby Horda wasn't dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it starts eating. <laughs> it was in a bit of a coma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, but I mean, I'm glad all the babies, you know, survived. I thought maybe there was a typo and I forgot to go back and look and I was going to do this, but I remember they kept saying there were 20 eggs and then when one died, it was down to 19. Well, then when they went to what rescue Titan, as they were coming back, she was worried about her 19 babies. And I was like, wait, how would she know it's 19? Uh, or did the, I read that wrong? No, the reason is uh, the Cardassian Gull told her that he killed one, I think, or something. Although, actually, by that point, she would know that that was a lie. So Yeah, yeah. she knew he was hmm. lying at that point. Yeah. Yeah, now I'm not sure. I'm, I, missed, <laughs> I missed that, so I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I meant to go back and look, but I didn't. But I was like, wait, how does she know 19? Hmm. hmm. So, overall, what did you think of the book? Overall, I generally enjoyed it. I think, uh, you know, especially considering, uh, I'm not sure with regards to John Gregory Betancourt, I didn't look this up, but for Greg Cox, this was the first Star Trek novel that he wrote or, or co-wrote anyway. Uh, and, and I think it is an interesting one that fits in fairly well with the time period they're putting in with the exception of a few little issues that we brought up. But, uh, you know, it was one that I felt was a bit of a slow burn to start out with. I wasn't 
really digging it until I got kind of into the second half of the novel and really started seeing these story elements come together. And I really ended up enjoying it at that point. Um, there's, there's a few little things that I think narratively were a little unsatisfying the Jake and Nog thing we brought up. Uh, and there's some other parts that like, I'm kind of disturbed. I found very narratively satisfying. So the gull, for example, who was in charge of, uh, Titan on this mining operation that the Cardassians have, he had told her that they have her 20 eggs and they were using that as leverage against her saying they'll kill her children if they don't, if she doesn't do what they're telling her to do. And, you know, she says, like I said, they killed one of them and that kind of thing. She finds out that he was lying about this and using that, you know, against her is the psychological warfare. And they come face to face at the end and he tries one last time. He said to Tan, you go back to your cell or I'm going to kill all of your children. And she just like leaps on him and dissolves him. And I was cheering. Like I'm kind of disturbed that I was so happy for that, that she got that measure of revenge. And that's not generally the kind of person I am, but like that satisfaction that she had from doing that. And like, you know, at that point, I, I do th feel like it's justified. It's self-defense, right? She's surrounded by Cardassian soldiers that are holding weapons on her. This is the person who has been holding her and forcing her to work as a slave under the threat of killing her children. I, it's completely justified. And I was definitely cheering at that point. But yeah, it's stuff like that that I think really shows the talent for writing characters that Greg Cox has and, and John Gregory Betancourt. I'm not sure. I'm not as familiar with his writing, but going forward, Greg Cox writes the characters really well. And I really identify with, you know, this character in particular and making a big lump of silicon, somebody you can identify with, I think is a really good talent for a writer. So yeah, I, it's not my favorite, but I would say it's kind of pretty close to a 3.5 to four out of five, maybe 3.75 out of five, uh, tunnels dug by Horta, uh, into, critical circuits on deep space nine. <laughs> so yeah, I generally really enjoyed it with a few issues here and there. Yeah. I'm pretty much there with you. I love that you mentioned that, that scene uh, where the Horda attacks the gall because that was one of my favorites too. I, yeah, I have to admit, I was kind of cheering after that one, like, yes, <laughs> but, but um, overall, I mean, I, I, the book was okay for me. It was, I thought the characters were pretty well written, especially early in Deep Space Nine. And uh, I, like I said, I did enjoy Bashir and Kira and, and Dax, that early take on their characterizations. And the whole Horda thing, it was after a while, it was starting to get to me a little because I was just like, okay, I'm getting tired of chasing Horda with no solution. <laughs> yeah. And it was just like, I just wanted to get somewhere with that. I'd enjoyed the whole uh Bajoran slave laborers saving them. Uh, but for the most part, it just didn't feel like I kept wanting something more. I kept wanting more. Like it it just needed like more depth or or something more with a character and really deal with like a, a changing moment for them or a revelation of something or something. But it was just lacking that for me. 
and I was thinking about it later, and I thought, well, the book is about hordas that are going amok on the station, and the other storyline is half of our crew is going on a rescue mission. And I thought, well, that's what the book is. Like, I wouldn't say there's really much more to it than that. It's chasing Horda and doing a rescue mission. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing really all that more interesting going on than just that. So it kind of fell a little flat to me. I read it in two days. So it wasn't like it was too slow or boring for me because I was plowing through it. So I would say I would give this three out of five Horda eggs that are ripe to scramble and eat for breakfast. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Tatan is glaring at you. (laughs) I'm sorry. I shouldn't have gone there, but I had eggs this morning for breakfast, and they were so good, and that's on my mind right now. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So, yeah, you know, I I think not not a bad rating for sure. Uh, it's, It's one I've been interested to read for a while, so I kind of like that it was both at least on the above 50% side for us. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. But yeah, I, it was fun. It was, you know, I, I, again, it wouldn't be something I would go and recommend like, oh, if you're going to read a Deep Space Nine novel, this is the one, of course, <laughs> unless you love Horda. If you love Horda, this is definitely a, a do that you must read this book. <laughs> so, well, thanks everyone for joining us. So our next episode, we're going to do another book on our book club episode. When I say next episode, it's our book club episode will be To Lose the Earth. It's the Star Trek Voyager novel that just came out by Kirsten Beyer, and we're going to have Kirsten on the show to discuss that book. And Dan and I are big fans of her Voyager novels, and this is apparently her last one, unless somewhere down the road she decides to do more. But for now, it definitely is the last one. And I haven't started reading it yet, but I'm so excited to delve into it. Yeah, I'm excited to get into it too. Everything that I've had to write about this novel so far, like the the release announcement and all that stuff on treklit.com, it's kind of an exercise in how many times can I write the phrase long awaited because we've been awaiting we've been waiting for this one for a while and so happy to finally see it released. And we know that Kirsten's been busy working on Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, and just so happens our next episode Episode 51 is our review of the season premiere of Star Trek Discovery. So check it out. So yeah, (laughs) I'm excited to talk about that too. So thanks everyone for joining us. Dan, if people want to find you online, where can they find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Kurtrats Productions, where I make videos all about Star Trek and probably a lot about Star Trek Discovery in the coming weeks. <laughs> oh yeah, sounds good. And you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex and occasionally on the Star Wars Report podcast. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. Keep reading Star Trek novels and comics. And of course, stay positive. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.